Bibles and turn with me to the book of Luke chapter 15. Book of Luke chapter 15. From the songs we've sung this morning, I've been reminded and I hope you have been too that wherever you are in life, whatever circumstance you are in, the gospel applies to you. The gospel does apply to you. That it teaches us to live and to die well. That the story of Jesus, the, his death on a cross and his resurrection was to bring life. And it brings life to you, regardless of what situation you are in. I hope you're asking yourself, I hope you're asking God, how does the good news of Jesus apply to you? Because it will find application in your life. In it you find endurance, in it you find joy, you find strength. As we look at the book of Luke this morning, and we get into chapter 15, we're jumping ahead of where you are in your Sunday school classes. You guys slowed down on me, so it kind of messed me up. That's okay. That's okay. I hope to prepare you a little bit for the, what you will study next week. We're going to be in verses 11 through 32 in chapter, in chapter 15. Children, if you listen, uh, look at me for a moment, hopefully for longer than a moment, but last week we talked about that God was a great king that he was a great king, that God being a great king, he cares for all people. He cares for the people that that other people might not care about. You know those, those kids that you hang out with that other people may not like as much and may make fun of? God cares for those people. Those people that may seem like they can't do anything and they're not worth much, God loves those people greatly. That he is a great king, that he rules over all people in the world, and he desires that all people would follow him and obey him. He is a great, loving king, and he wants you to follow him. As a good king, he even heals people. He's a powerful king. We said that last week, he's as powerful as a lion, but he's gentle like a lamb. He's a good king. This week, we're going to study that God is also a father. He's a king, but he is also, he's like a kind father. And just like a father, hopefully like the father you have, even when you mess up, God is the kind of father who says, I forgive you, I love you. I'll never stop loving you. That's the kind of father God is. And so children, as we read the story this morning about a son who messes up very much, he does some very bad things. But when that son comes back to his home, the father is ready, waiting. Not only is he waiting, but he's going to run to that son, and he's going to show him how much he loves him. You're also going to hear about a son who's not so happy. And the father begs that son to be happy, to recognize how much he loves him. Children, always remember your father loves and he forgives. Even the worst of people, he forgives them. So this is what I want you to remember this morning. That God is a great king and that God is a great father. A loving father. If you're looking in your Bibles, uh, above where we're beginning this morning in verse 11, you will see that the title is probably the parable of the prodigal son. Does everyone see that? Raise your hand if it says that in your Bible. Right? Just, Just about everybody. Well, this is actually an inaccurate title. It's not often that I'll correct something that's in the Bible. I will not do that often. But Jesus, just so you know, did not get up before his parables and say, hey guys, later when you write this down, here's the title that you need to remember. He, he never did that. 
He never did that. What you'll see in this parable as, we, the begin, as it begins is Jesus says, and he said, being Jesus, there was a man who had two sons. This is, the, this is as close to Jesus gets to giving a title. What we need to remember this morning is that this story, this what we call a parable, a parable is a story just about a larger truth. It's often not a true historical story necessarily, but it's a story that represents a larger truth. And you need to remember that this is about more than just one son. This is about a father who had two sons. And so I've titled it this morning, A Father and His Two Sons. I figure you can't go wrong with what Jesus says, right? Uh, some of you are reading the NIV application commentary right now as you prepare for your Sunday school lessons. And, and Daryl Bach, the writer of that commentary, says that you could call it the forgiving father and the begrudging brother. There are various titles that you could give to this. You, sh you should know that those titles that are given were not there originally. Those came in about the 5th century uh, when, the, when they were translating and doing this work, but it was not part of the original manuscript. So when I tell you that this is not the correct title, I'm not trying to correct what was actually there in the beginning. I I'm not going against the Bible. But we do need to remember this morning that this is a parable about two sons. It's going to become very important. As we look at the parable, we're going to divide it into three sections. It's, actually, it's a story with three scenes. It's like a, a movie or a short story, and it has three scenes. In two of the scenes, we're going to see two types of sin. Two types of sin. One type of sin, it's clearly recognizable. It's very apparent. It appears in the younger brother who lives recklessly. He spends his money on an elaborate lifestyle that could never have sustained itself. The other type of sin, it's less apparent. It hides itself in this rigorous religiosity and this pious devotion. This is the guy who has all his quiet times. He's at church every time the doors are open. He can quote scripture. He corrects people when they say bad words. He is very pious, obedient in every way. But we will see that it is another type of sin. And in the middle of the story, in the, in the middle section is a father. A father that shows us that love and forgiveness cannot be earned. Even by the most religious. Even by the most devoted. But love and forgiveness must only be accepted. It can only be accepted. So as we begin, we will see the path of self-discovery. This is the first type of sin that we will see in the younger brother. Let's read this story, through this story all at once before we begin. Will you stand with me as we read? Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 32. Jesus is speaking, and he said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them, between the two sons. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had, and he took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father 
And I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Verse 21. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now, his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. You may be seated. Father, we pray that you would open our hearts to receive your word this morning. Lord, show us how we need to repent before you, Father. Show us what path we are on. And Lord, may we be humble before you and before your grace. Receiving it when it's shown to us and receiving it when it's shown lavishly towards others. Lord, we thank you for your kindness. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. One of the things that we need to consider when we're approaching a story of this nature is who is the audience? Who is the audience? And this gives us insight to why we're going to focus on two sons. You'll remember that Jesus is on the road to the Jerusalem. He's, he's speaking to these groups who are traveling and following and then gathering uh, towards him. If you look at the beginning of chapter 15, chapter 15, verse 1, you'll see the audience that Jesus is speaking to as he shares this story. It says in 15.1, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So as Jesus shares this story, we know that tax collectors and sinners the most despised by the religious people, are gathering around Jesus to hear his stories. But we also know that the Pharisees are listening in. They're on the outer skirts. They're in the back listening and grumbling as Jesus invites these tax collectors and sinners to come near to him. So it's this context in which we get the story that Jesus is sharing with us. The first point, the first scene that we see is a path of self-discovery. This is the path of the younger son. It says in verse 12, the younger son said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And the father divides his property between them. 
Now, as the younger sons ask this, because many of you have heard before, this is a complete rejection of his father. This normally, this separating of the property, this would not have happened until the father died. This would have brought great shame on the father in, the, in his community. He was a man of propriety, of respect. He was an elder man. Yet his son comes up to him and says, Father, will you go ahead and give me what you're going to give me when you die? I want it now. And so in a, in a very great sense, the son is rejecting his father and saying, Dad, I wish you would go ahead and pass on. I want what you're going to give me. It would have brought great shame. Yet, this father chooses to go ahead and distribute the property. Notice that he divides the property not only to the younger son, he would have received less than the older son, but he goes ahead and does what he would have done at his death. He divides the property between his older son and the younger son. So they both receive the property that they are to get at his death. Now it also says that in verse 13, not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. Now, men in this period, normally what they would inherit would be property. This is what this man owned. This is where his money was invested. It was not like now when you might receive money, just cash or some form. They would have received property. So what this younger son does is immediately inherits this form of property and probably exchanges it, sells it. He disowns every bit of his family. This m property was supposed to stay with the family. It was just a very family-oriented society, and yet this son shames his family and disowns them in every way possible. He exchanges that property for money so that he can leave. Now, as it says that the younger son, he gathers his, all he has, he takes a journey into a far country. This may seem very subtle, and it is. But for that audience, what the text is trying to convey is that the son was leaving the land of God's people. Remember that Israel was the land of God's people, where God's word was manifest, where people heard God's word, where, where the son's family dwelt, where he had been taught the principles of God's word. And he leaves it all. He disowns it. And he goes to a far country to learn his own way of life. So, he rejects the principles he's grown up with, all the wisdom he's been taught, and he strikes out on his own. And this is why we title this the path of self-discovery. This son is saying that there's got to be something better than this. And so I'm going to go and find my own way. In many ways, he's like the writer of Ecclesiastes. If you remember the book of Ecclesiastes, this writer seeks to find the meaning of life in every way, in his own way. Will you turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 2 so that we can look a little more closely at this? This is also on the screens if you'd like to look there. We're going to read verses 1 through 8 of chapter 2 of Ecclesiastes and then verse 11. The writer says, I said in my heart, Come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till, till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. Notice what this writer is looking for, what he's trying to discover. He says, 
till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. He's trying to find meaning in life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the children of man. Then look at verse 11. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil that I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. The writer of Ecclesiastes seeks to find meaning in life in his own way. He rejects all that society has taught him and said, there's got to be something better for us to do. Now the son that we're studying in the book of Luke, he evidently didn't have the resources that the writer of Ecclesiastes had. We'll see that he came upon a famine and he had nothing left. But for practical purposes, what we want to illustrate here is that the path of self-discovery can take many forms. And in short, here's what the path of self-discovery is. It's an attempt to find meaning in life apart from God. That's what the path of self-discovery is. And this is what this son and the writer of Ecclesiastes tried to do. They tried to find meaning in life apart from the one who created life. From the one who designed them. From the one who gives life. I wonder if there are any of you in here this morning who are trying to find meaning in your life. To find what God wants for your life. Or or to find what you're supposed to do with your life apart from God. It can't happen. God designed your life. God gave you life. You can't find meaning in life apart from God. This is the path of self-discovery. Now this son, we find as we continue in the story that he has nothing left. He squanders his property in reckless living. And when he spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country. And he began to be in need. Now in some ways he's beyond all pity, right? Because it was his fault. He spent all his money and then this famine arises. Now there were some external, external circumstances that contributed to his situation. But he spent all he had. He didn't invest wisely. He didn't use his money wisely in any way. But he comes to the bottom. Now, in Jesus, in telling the story, tells us in verse 15 that when he had nothing, he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his field to feed pigs. Again, a subtle detail that is very important. This is the most disgusting animal in all of Israel for Jews. You could not handle a pig. You could not eat of a pig. It was a hideous, disgusting animal. It was rolling around in mud. 
Jesus uses this point, maybe somewhat uh, for shock value, but what he's doing is showing the depths of sin that this guy has in. He spent everything he has, and now he's wallowing with pigs and taking care of pigs and wishing that he could eat the things that the pigs are eating. He's at the bottom. Friends, we've seen things like this in our day. We know people like this. A guy or girl who grows up in a wonderful family, they're taught the ways of God, but in college or maybe in high school, they begin a reckless lifestyle full of partying, drugs, eventually living in addiction, and then they come to the point where they'll even sell themselves just to get by. We know this lifestyle. We know this this sin. We've seen it before. It's so apparent. It's so evident to the eyes when people are walking in this way of life. I just wonder if there are any of you this morning that are seeking to find meaning and purpose in your life apart from God. We see it in the writer of Ecclesiastes. We see see it in this younger son. And here is what you need to, to see. Friend, this path of self-discovery has been tested many times. Many, many times. And it does not have a good ending. There's nothing new under the sun. Many of you might be trying to reinvent the wheel, say, I can find something better in life. You won't. The path of self-discovery, you always find yourself either dying along the way or begging for help. So if you're on this path, if you would say that you're on this path, you're trying to find it on your own, will you turn to the Lord? Will you turn? Will you cry out for help? Will you confess your wretchedness and say that you need help? The younger son realizes that he needs help. In the second scene, the the younger son is the main character in the first scene. The older son is mentioned only once and the father only a little when he divides the property. But in the second scene, the father becomes the main character. We begin in verse 17 with this. The younger son comes to himself. It's, a, it's an epiphany. He comes to himself and he says, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? And then he begins to go over in in his head what he's going to do. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. This is just a saying for he has sinned against God and against his father. He says, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. He knows that he's disowned his family in every way. He's no longer worthy to be called a son. He says, treat me as one of your hired servants. Now, we need to know what the son is asking for. To be treated as one of the father's hired servants is not even to be equal with a slave. You see, a slave was a part of the family in a sense. They were devoted to the family's work. They lived within, on the family's acreage. But the hired worker was one that even the slaves would train. And they would hire them on sometimes to do work for them. And so for this, this son is asking, asking for a status of less than a slave. So bring me on to be one of your hired servants. Verse 20, so he arises. He has this plan. He arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, felt compassion, ran and embraced him and kissed him. 
now. There's something you need to know about this society. Remember, this is an elder within this society. I brought just a little illustration so you'd see what this man was probably doing. I thought about wearing this to preach, but it would have been very hot, and I probably would have tripped. This man was wearing a robe, probably something like this. Something like this. So you see this, you can picture, use your imagination, this, this older man, probably a leader, an elder within his village, and his younger son, who has just disowned him in every way, who has shamed him by telling him, Dad, I wish you were dead. It, just give me what, what I'm going to get, and I'm going to go on. This man is standing there, and he sees his younger son coming from a long way off. Now, it was very improper for men wearing this for one thing, and then also being an older man of dignity, to run. Can you imagine this morning if you walked in and Mr. Earl, wearing this, just started running at you. I mean, flail, arms flailing, legs flailing, and then he, his dress thing is flying up and you're seeing his legs. and all. This is what's going on with this man. This older, respected man who's been shamed by this son. The village is probably there and they see this man running towards this son who is disowned him. But what's incredible is this father is not concerned with the rest of the village's thinking. He's concerned with showing compassion to his son. Why is he running? It says because he felt compassion for him. So he runs towards him. He falls on his neck and he kisses him. He initiates the forgiving process. Now, when the son finally has a chance to speak, after this father has shown all this compassion, he's embraced him, he's kissed him, and then the son says to the father, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said, wait. The son didn't finish his speech. The son was also supposed to say, bring me in as one of your hired servants. Remember, that's what he planned. But the father interrupts. Before the son can get to the next point in his speech, the father interrupts and says to one of his servants, bring quickly the best robe. This would have been the father's robe. Put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. What the father saying is saying is, this son was outside, but now he's fully in. He's back in. He's not going to be just a hired servant. He is a son. He's back. He's adorning him in jewelry, shoes, the best robe. And he says, and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. Now, in the Middle East in this period, they did not have meat with every meal. I mean, men, I, I don't know how they survived, right? But they didn't have meat with every meal. It was even rare. And so the fact that they killed this fattened calf is, is huge. This is a celebration that they would only possibly have once a year. This is a massive celebration. He kills the fattened calf and he says, let us eat and celebrate. Now, Christians, celebrating is such a large part of the kingdom. And we often miss this. When Levi the tax collector, after Jesus called him, what did Levi do? He threw a party. And Jesus was there. 
and they feasted and they celebrated. This is in Luke. The Lord's Supper, the table represents what we will do in just a little bit. But it's a somber celebration of salvation provided. But it's a joyous one because one day Jesus said, when the kingdom of God comes, we will celebrate with him. See, redemption calls for celebration. As Jesus comes on the scene in the Gospels, we often see him eating with people. In the Gospel of John, and I I don't mean to cause controversy here, but Jesus' first miracle is turning water into wine at a wedding. Now, John didn't just do this to make some people mad. It's very intentional. Wine is a sign of celebration. The kingdom of God is here. It is time to celebrate. Salvation, redemption is at hand. Christians, you should know how to celebrate. Our lives should be balanced with sacrifice because we know the needs of others. But we should know how to celebrate. You see, when we get together and we eat together and we partake of food that God has given, it's a foreshadowing of what we will do with God in the kingdom. This is a big question. Do you you know what it means to just celebrate? To delight in God and what He's given? And even the material things that He's given? Yes, our lives should be balanced very much. And as we've talked about before, self-controlled. But some of us are so stuffy and we don't know how to celebrate. We don't know what it means that it's joy that the kingdom of God is here. So, this son coming home, it brings celebration. The father in his compassion fully restores him. Now remember, this is a story about a man with two sons. Two sons. So what happens next? In verse 24, we've reached somewhat of a peak, a climax of the story. They began to celebrate. You would think this is the end. The son has come home. We thought he was dead, but he's found. He's alive and he's well. And he's a son again. But then in verse 25, now his older son was in the field And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard much music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. There are two characteristics that we'll see of this path of religious self-salvation. This is the path that this older brother is on. A path of self-salvation. The first characteristic we'll see is blind hypocrisy. It's very ironic as we look at this, this story. That the younger brother is the one who goes off, who ditches his family, removes all ties, selling the property that he inherited. He was the brother who's outside. But what we'll see is that when the younger brother comes home and he's restored... The, young, the older brother is the one who's outside. He will not go inside to celebrate the forgiveness and the grace that's been shown. There's a hypocrisy, a blind hypocrisy. He doesn't even know it's there. This is the problem with Pharisees and religious people. They don't know they're Pharisees. This is something we need to be aware of. When we're religious, we don't even know it. It's blind, he's blind, a blind hypocrite. 
The second characteristic we'll see is just a pride. He exalts his own goodness and exploits the sins of others. Let's look at this blind hypocrisy first. As we said, he was angry and refused to go in. You see, the younger son used to be outside the family, but now it's the older son who refuses to go in and to be a part of the family celebration. His father comes out. This same father who showed compassion for the younger son. Now remember, this father, this very respectable father, he's throwing a party. There are guests here from all over the village. What should this father be doing? Entertaining guests, right? But what is he doing instead? He's going out to his older son and begging him, will you at least come in and party with us? Will you celebrate with us? Now also know that the the older son would have had a role at the party. He would have been uh, charged with making sure that the guests had all they need, all they needed. If they ran out of something to drink, something to eat, he would have been a servant, making sure that they got all they needed. But instead, the older son is refusing to be a part of the party that his father plans. You see, what he's doing is the same thing that the younger son did, but in a different way. Again, he's a blind hypocrite. He doesn't know he's a hypocrite. The younger son disowned his father. The older son is disrespecting his father. He won't be involved in the party that the father plans. When his father comes out and says, look, these many years... No, his father comes out and entreated him, but he responds, look, dad, these many years I've served you, I've never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. And then listen closely to what he says in verse 30. But when this son of yours came... Now wait... It's not just the father's son, it's also his brother. No. He's so angry that he's disowned him as part of his family. You see, the sons that the younger son committed before, the older son, in the name of good deeds, is now committing the same sins. He disowns his family. He disrespects his father in public. He's a blind hypocrite. He does what the younger brother did and he doesn't even know it. But he's also prideful. Look at verse 29. He says, on the basis of these good deeds, he says, look, many years I've served you. I've served you. Now, remember what the younger son came home asking to be? A hired servant. A hired servant. He asked to be lower than a slave, not to be restored back into the family, not to be a slave, but to be a hired servant. But look at what the, younger bro- the older brother has seen himself as all along, a hired servant. You see, religious people think that their good deeds are earning them a sense of favor. This older brother who's been a part of this family and all along could have had all the father's love and kindness has thought that his staying with the father while his brother went off, his working hard, laboring on the father's land, was earning him his father's favor. It was keeping him in good standing while the brother was in bad standing with the father. Such pride in his good deeds. 
the older brother's unspoken demand, as Tim Keller says in his little book, The Prodigal God, I have never disobeyed you. Now you have to do things in my life the way I want them to be done. Are any of you that way? Do any any of you think that maybe your your faithfulness in church attendance, your faithfulness in your quiet times, are somehow earning you good favor with God, but you're staying in good standing with Him because of your good deeds? Friends, God's love and grace are free. They can't be earned. This brother could have been enjoying the goodness of the father, but instead he saw himself as a slave. He never enjoyed it. Another quote from Keller. The main barrier between Pharisees and God is not their sins, but their damnable good works. Here's the problem, friends. Your good works, as Isaiah says, are filthy before God. They can't earn you access. They can't get you in. It's only His grace and His kindness that He would pour out on you that would bring you in. But this older brother, all he can do is look at his good works and see his good works and say, man, can this not... Doesn't this show for something? Doesn't this get me somewhere? So he's exalting himself, his inherent goodness and what he's done. But he also exploits others. This is what religious people do. They look at themselves and they say, man, I've done good, I've done well. But then they look to others and say, I'm not like them. I've done a lot better than them. Look at verse 30. He said, when this son of yours came who devoured your property with prostitutes. Now, we often just read this and say, well, yeah, he, this guy was with prostitutes, the younger brother, that's right. Friends, did the text ever say anything about the younger brother being with prostitutes? Never. It never did. It said he enjoyed, he, he went on reckless living. He never, it never says anything. We have no proof that he was with prostitutes. But this is what the older brother does, is he exploits the sins of the younger brother. He says he went off and he was with prostitutes. He he puts this specific sin with him that he has no proof for. This older brother has no idea what it means to enjoy the Father. And because of this, he exalts himself, he exploits others. His excuse is, Dad, you never gave me the opportunity to celebrate with my friends. And And the father responds to that, Son, you're all the you're always with me. All that is mine is yours. Remember. That at the beginning of the story, the father divided the property between the younger son and the older son. The older son got his share as well. At any time, this older son could have enjoyed the property that the father has given to him. But this older brother doesn't know how. Remember that the audience for this story is tax collectors, sinners, and the Pharisees who are grumbling nearby. Now the story has left open. 
The father just says, it was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. We have no idea what happens with the older brother. We know that he wouldn't go into the party. Why is the story left open? Because the Pharisees still had time to repent. The Pharisees are the older brother. The older brother is who is, un, who is unhappy at the way the father is showing love and forgiveness to wretched people like tax collectors and sinners. The same is true for all religious extremists today who are trying to get to God on their own. And know that you don't have to even claim to believe in God to be a religious extremist. There are many of you who are putting faith in yourself. You're putting faith maybe in atheism or something else. But you are a religious extremist. You're putting faith in something besides God to get you somewhere. But there's still time. You can repent. You can repent. One other point about the older brother. When we started this story... We didn't hear much about the older brother except that he received the father, the property that the father gave. Now, in this society, when there was this division between like the younger son and the father, there was supposed to be a third party who would come and who would try to bring reconciliation here. The older brother would have been the one who was supposed to go get the younger brother. He was to be the one who was supposed to go get him to talk some sense into him and make him return. When they thought that this younger brother might have been dead, it was the older brother's responsibility as part of the family and as the older brother to go and get him. But he never did. From the beginning of the story, we see there is some type of broken relationship between the older brother and the father, between the older brother and this entire family. He doesn't know love. He doesn't know kindness. He doesn't know forgiveness. His faith is all in himself and his own religious doings. But here again, the trouble with Pharisees is that they don't know they're Pharisees. So we all need to ask ourselves if we're on some pursuit of self-salvation, thinking our goodness or good deeds are going to earn us a sense of favor and forgiveness from God, And as one preaching these things, Sunday after Sunday, I've realized that I have to be careful that these aren't just words, that they aren't just exercises, but that my heart is being changed. For those of you who are in pews, we are chairs here, week after week, is this just an exercise or is your heart being changed, being melted by God's grace, being humbled? And as a church, here's a question we need to ask. Who are we appealing to? Are we appealing to people like the younger brother who've wasted their lives? People who've spent all they had, who've lived with recklessness, foolishness, but then are seeking forgiveness? Or are we appealing to people like older brothers who are religious who just want to come to church to sit and to do their religious duty you see if we're appealing to people like older brothers 
then it's likely that we are older brothers ourselves. We need to be appealing to younger brothers. Only then can we really see that we are acting like the Father. We're showing compassion. We're showing kindness. We're pouring it out on behalf of others. This is a question we need to ask as a church. For a few moments before we partake of the Lord's Supper, I want to give you some time to pray. As we did last week with the parable, anytime you're reading a story of this nature, the application comes from you asking yourself, who am I like in the story? Are you like the younger brother? Are you on a path of self-discovery? Are you trying to find meaning in your life apart from God? Or are you like the older brother? Are you on a path of self-salvation? Putting pride in your, yourself and your good works? Can you see character traits of that father? That father who is meant to be like God himself. Who loves and shows great compassion. No matter how bad the deed might be. Can you see those character traits building in your heart? Are you expressing those character traits to others? And for those of you who haven't believed, who've been on that path of self-discovery, will you return this morning? Will you confess your sin? Will you return to God, the author of your life, the only one who can tell you the way that life is meant to be lived? He will show you grace through the kindness of His Son. I want to give you a few moments to pray before we prepare for our Lord's Supper. And for believers who will partake of the Lord's Supper, any of you, if you're from a different other church, you're welcome to partake. But will you prepare by searching your heart, confessing sin before we partake? Please bow your heads and pray.